0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Communities on the Murray River are frantically sandbagging to protect homes and businesses against the second flood peak expected in coming days
0: sandbag would be up there with sort of gold silver in that sort of area um so they're definitely a precious resource but they're definitely being filled and then loaded on the trucks as quick as they're coming in so um precious resource but at the moment we're uh,
2: we're mining them pretty well
1: and do you remember this pivotal day in australian history
2: uh, i tell you what any boss who sacks anyone for not turning up die the day is
1: a bum I wonder if he did turn up. Well, we're going to take a deep, deep dive into a decades-old mystery that harks back to that America's Cup party. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk country. We start along the Victoria-New South Wales border at the twin towns of Echuca and Moama that sit either side of a rising Murray River. Residents in both towns are busily preparing their properties for a second flood peak expected in the coming days. Rami Stevens is our reporter on the New South Wales side of the river, which is Moama. Rami, a busy time there along the Murray River as people sandbag around their properties and build levees and get prepared. What's it looking like where you are at the moment?
3: Sinead, there's quite a flurry of activity here in Moama at the moment because people are just frantically trying to build build up sandbags and take them to houses and then build up sandbag walls around their houses. I'm currently sitting right beside the sandbag packing and pickup point here in Moama. It's right next to the bridge that joins Echuca and Moama. And there are people of all ages in there, and they're gathering up the sandbags, they're putting them into cars and onto trailer, and then they're taking them out. As I said, it's just a bit of a buzz of activity, and there's all there's kids in there, there's males, there's females. Everyone in the community at the moment is just working to help prepare properties and to prepare the town for expected major flooding, which uh, is expected to start sometime soon and then the peak is looking like it will be more towards Friday and Saturday of this week so uh, it's going to be a long week for a lot of the people around here.
1: That's back work you know filling sandbags, hoofing them onto a trailer and away you go to come back again um, uh, when you're trying to protect your house. How are people going like what's the energy levels like?
3: <laughs> yeah people are remaining pretty optimistic I must say but they are tired a lot of them there were some young kids we spoke to earlier today they've been up since pretty early this morning six seven o'clock they've been delivering sandbags all day uh, and you know they're in their teens they're not used and they said they we've never seen anything like this in this in this town so um, they're, they're pretty tired but there is a lot of optimism around and there's such incredible community spirit I've had residents today actually break down in tears just because they are so grateful and so thankful for the support. There's people that are delivering sandbags to houses and stacking them up against the walls of houses and the homeowners don't even know who they are. And Mm. they just say, you know, we can't believe these random strangers are just coming to help us. Um, and then it also depends on whereabouts you are in Moama. There's some places that are within the levee. There's some pe- places that are outside the levee, And a lot of those houses that are outside the levee, the owners are much more anxious and they're really scared about their properties being impacted.
1: Rami, you mentioned that there are people outside the levee and, and that those people are nervous. Can you explain that and, and will there be help for them?
3: Yeah, we went to a street, a residential street today, and the actual road has is part of the levy. It's raised, and on one side of that uh were some houses that were next to the Murray River and the other side was inside the levee uh, and those houses looked like they could potentially be safe. So um, it was the ones that were outside of that levee that they were just saying, yeah we're we're really scared. Um, but they they've prepared their properties extensively and have sandbag walls. And the ones inside the levee um, haven't quite done as much preparation. Uh, And really all the support in town is going towards those people outside the levee. That's where a lot of the sandbags we found have been going today.
1: Now, there are evacuation orders in place for people in Moama. How many people are affected by those?
3: Yeah, so we've got, um, there's evacuation orders near the town. um, So mainly towards the eastern side of town. And where those evacuation orders uh, there are hundreds of residential homes, we've been told, that are impacted by that. Um, but then there's also the evacuation orders kind of go um, stretch along the Murray River up towards the north northeast of Moama. So the Murray Valley Regional Park um, and also the Kumara Gunja community, which is near Barma, that's an indigenous community. Um, it's about half an hour from Moama. And that community there has been evacuated. We actually passed by there. On the way down to Moama um, earlier and it was very quiet around there most of that community there was about i've been told around 60 people within that indigenous community there that have been evacuated um, and most of the people within there have have got out so it was very quiet around there and the river was quite high um, Mathara east which is also northeast of where i am now in Moama there's also an evacuation order there for picnic point
1: and in terms of the rainfall I believe it's quite bright where you are now in terms of the weather when are you expecting more rain?
3: Yeah, I'm looking out the window now and it's blue skies at the moment. It has been quite a nice day here, but we've seen some of that rain falling um, further north of New South Wales. And if you check out the radar, it's been around there um, as of today. That rain's now expected to move further down south towards where I am on the New South Wales-Victorian border over the coming days. Um, I guess the kind of the scary thing is that it's not exactly clear how much is going to fall and where it's going to fall and that's crucial in determining you know exactly which communities are hit harder. Uh, I know that further north of me on the Murrumbidgee River there's also um, some concerns around places like Narantra and there's a lot of flooding happening in those areas as well so it's highly dependent on where the rain falls but we can expect that to kind of start to hit from tomorrow and towards the end of the week.
1: Rami the river systems move very slowly there and um, so in terms of timing are the community expecting that they'll have to deal with these floodwaters for some time that it will drag on?
3: Yeah and it, again it's really it really is highly dependent on the rain that we get in coming weeks I mean I feel like it's been weekly and fortnightly bursts of rainfall around here um, in recent times so this could drag on for a matter of weeks there's a rural fire service base camp that's set up in Daniloquin and they're expecting they've got a lot of workers that are coming down from there and it's a good place to set up there but they're expecting to have that open for a few weeks Um, but they said that it can actually stretch out to several weeks if need be Um, so it's really up in the air at the moment but it's looking like a matter of weeks that these communities will be dealing with this flooding and highly dependent on whether or not the rain stops or we keep getting more down this way.
1: Rami Stevens in Moama, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. You're listening to Australia Wide.
0: On ABC Radio.
1: Yesterday on the way home from work, I cycled by my nearest ATM machine to get some cash out. It was boarded up, it no longer exists. And there was no explanation. The big bank was no longer providing that service to me its customer. This is an all too common experience in Australia. Bricks and mortar banks are closing to customers and ATMs are hard to find. Bank regulator, Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, has today released statistics that show how quickly banks are pulling out of communities. In the past five years 677 banks closed in regional and rural Australia. There are only about 1,600 left. And if you can't get into the bank to see someone to do your banking, an ATM is less and less of an option because more than 1,600 ATMs have closed in regional and remote Australia in the same amount of time. Julia Angrisano is the National Secretary of the Finance Sector Union and she's been following this issue closely. Before we start chatting, I do have to mention the name of this report, Julia. Um, it's called Authorised Deposit-Taking Institutions' Points of Presence Statistics, which I thought was the most breathtaking <laughs> corporate speak I'd ever heard. I was like, what is that now? We're talking about banks. Yes, what's open, what's closed. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. But also what's surprising are the numbers, which I've kind of alluded to. Are are you at all surprised by the sheer numbers of bank services being withdrawn from regional towns? Look, sadly, we're
4: not surprised at the numbers that were released today. Uh, We've been uh, talking about branch closures for many years now, but in particular, we've seen this dramatic and very fast rate of branch closures since the start of the pandemic, um, so it's not surprising, but it is very concerning because we know that the impact on a small regional or rural town when the bank closes its doors, it's really significant. It, it has a devastating effect um, on that community in terms of their, their access to banking services. Yes. And I think what what's often forgotten here is um, that whilst banks talk about banking is, has evolved and it's become more digital. And whilst we accept that to be true for some people, it is just not the case for everybody. And many of our members who are working in these branches say, I can tell you right now that these customers who come in, they're not financial or digital, uh, digitally literate. They are really worried and quite nervous to be online to do their banking. Many older Australians who don't, um, who won't be commuting to, you know, sometimes hundreds of kilometres, um, to get to the next town to, to to get to a face-to-face bank. So, we're, we're, we're forgetting about our older Australians, our, our disabled Australians, our indigenous communities. And we're, why are we forgetting about them? Really, at the end of the day, this is just a decision which is based on profits and has very, very little to do with the people in these local towns who need a bank.
1: But the banks would argue, though, that they've, they have streamlined it. The reason to push everything online is you can do everything online. Is it not fair enough for the banks in their business model to do it that way?
4: Yeah. And what the banks haven't told you about their business model is that they have deliberately forced customers online over the last few years. So our members who are working in the branch have had targets that they've had to achieve, which is essentially migrate a certain number of customers to digital. And if you don't do that, and if you don't achieve that migration target, then we are going to place you on a performance management plan. So workers are really stuck in the middle, having to push their customers onto digital, even when their customers say, we don't want this, um, and if they don't do it, then they face losing their jobs. And guess what? Now that they've achieved those numbers for the banks, they are facing the loss of their jobs because
1: their branches are closing. What about um, customers themselves? Are they voting with their feet and going elsewhere or is there any options? Look, banks make it
4: um, very sticky. They know, we've seen data that shows... um, That when a bank branch closes they don't actually have a lot of customers who leave because everything is is with your banking whether it's your home loan through to your um your insurances they're all connected and so it's overwhelming for customers to make the big decisions about how to unravel all of that and and perhaps find another local bank or a community bank so i would say that based on what we've seen customers don't don't kind of necessarily move and that's just another justification for the banks because they don't miss out on very much. They've got some upset customers for a little while, some pretty angry mayors. They ultimately close their doors and, you know, they hope that that, 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 that anger and that sentiment kind of, you know, is, is subdued over time because they don't actually see that customers are moving all that much.
1: Is there any pushback from government about uh, banks changing basically the the fabric of the way they've operated in communities in in a very short amount of time? There hasn't
4: been to date and there needs to be. What we need is a proper inquiry that can look at these issues deeply, that has all of the voices and all of the stakeholders um, contributing because at the end of the day, what we need is the government to say, you know what banks, you are an essential service. And then let's really start to think about um, what is an appropriate level of banking services for our regional and remote communities. We want to make sure that no Australian is left without access to banking services and that's why we're calling on this federal
1: government to actually deal with this in a very serious and urgent way. Julia Angrisano is the National Secretary of the Finance Sector Union. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide today.
3: Thank you. You're listening to Australia Wide (laughs) on ABC Radio.
1: And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. Now we're going to head to the tip of the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia to a place called Penindi. The tiny town is known for its Aboriginal mission, which was established in the mid-19th century. Many were buried at the old cemetery that's been left in ruins from years of neglect. Now the council is using new technology to identify where the graves are located. Bernadette Clark has more.
5: The historical South Australian town of Penindi is home to a number of heritage-listed buildings and sites. Amongst them is its cemetery. After years of neglect, it is now covered in rabbit holes, weeds, and the ground is slowly eroding. The Penindi Cemetery holds the bodies of many Air Peninsula settlers, as well as First Nations people that lived in the mission after being taken from their lands. Now, following lobbying from ancestors, the local council is restoring the heritage-listed site. Ghana woman Heather Cox says it's a great relief that work is finally being done. For decades, she and her family have been trying to get as much information as possible from Elders to locate who is in the cemetery.
4: We've had about eight generations till now. Since we arrived,
1: we were taken to Padindy Mission. So all bar one that was on Padindy Mission is buried out there, but we don't have any headstones or any markers to say where any of them are.
5: For First Nations people, the Penindi mission holds painful memories. They say it contributed to the erasure of their language and culture.
1: We have a record, an incomplete record, of who's buried there. Lots of names we know are missing from that. But we just want recognition. So just to be able to go to the graveyard itself and know that we're visiting them without standing by their grave is still a huge step forward for us.
5: A ground radar penetration survey is needed to locate where the gravesites sit. Flinders University archaeology professor Heather Burke said the equipment sent a pulse through the ground to various depths.
4: If it encounters any resistance, anything that's different to the normal content of the soil, like rocks or like um, burials, like cuts in the soil, like infill, anything that's a different compaction or a different type of sediment that's harder that's looser, it will change the signal and when that signal comes back, bounces back up to the top, we can interpret that as something that's different to the surrounding soil and then we have to work out what that is.
5: That humming in the background is the noise the ground penetration machine makes while it's at work. Dr Burke says one of the most common things they're asked as archaeologists is to find graves. It's one of
4: the really important things that communities want to know. They want to know where people are buried, they want to know particularly in old historic cemeteries or isolated burials out on properties. So it's, it's actually one of the, the most used pieces of equipment for that kind of
5: purpose. Council worker Sasheen Hopewell says the council is grateful for Flinders University's
4: involvement. They have been fantastic. They've been helping us right through and they're doing this at very little cost to us. Hopefully, we can make some improvements on site that really show the respect and and give some dignity back to this ground.
1: Bernadette Clark reporting there from Penindi in South Australia.
6: ABC Australia Wide.
1: It's been almost 40 years since Australia changed world sailing history and won the America's Cup, breaking the world's longest sporting winning streak of 132 years. But but although the crew and the syndicate are still dining out on their success, one little mystery is still at the back of their minds. And another mystery has come to light. Our reporter in Darwin, Connor Byrne, has put this story together for us.
2: She's shooting up into the wind. She's going out of it. Uh, I tell you what, any boss who sex anyone for not turning up, die the die
0: is a bum. Graydon Thomas, originally from Bunbury in Western Australia, was a guest at a wedding in Ireland. He has sparked an international search for a flag that went missing the night Australia won the America's Cup in 1983.
2: The reception was held at the Scary Sailing Club. I just chanced upon the trophy room. Certainly recognized it, a few bells started ringing. Uh, The point is it was in a frame, and I wondered why. You know, Boxing Kangaroo from 1983, obviously it's a collector's, but why would this one be in a frame? My father was best friends of the bosun on the tender to Australia too. His name was Newton Roberts. We had a ceremony for him just to surprise him when he arrived back to Bunbury. He made a speech. The day after the celebrations, he went back to the Black Swan to clean up. He was gutted to find that the, the boxing kangaroo that was had been flown from the Black Swan was missing.
0: The recent Netflix Untold, the Race of the Century documentary spurred Graydon to contact the surviving Australia 2 crew, about this mystery flag.
2: This has just been stapled around the edges so it hangs off the staples. There's some rust in there, and also, of course, I think they start, you know, over time they start to hang down off the, the uh, staples. And it has a few holes where it's perished. So it's, it's had a pretty tough life.
0: Australia 2 starboard trimmer Ken Judge was going to Ireland for business and went to investigate.
2: I think it's um, always going to be have a little bit of mystery about it was pretty frantic sort of a night Uh, and it was parked up right in front of Australia 2. So when Australia 2 was lifted out of the water, everybody was, a lot of people on on, uh, Black Swan at the time. At the end of the night, the flag seemed to be missing or seemed to have gone missing. We have really no idea what happened to it. It's been something that we've all wondered about for a long, long time. Uh, I have a particular attachment. My brother was the skipper of the tender Black Swan.
0: You've just won the America's Cup. You've broken world sporting history, you're on top of the world and someone steals a flag, who cares?
2: (laughs) It's part of our folklore. Um, we, We developed that flag and eventually we sold the rights to the flag or donated them to the Australian Olympic Committee and that's why it's become Australia's national sporting flag.
0: Spoiler alert, the boxing kangaroo flag missing from Black Swan is unfortunately not the same one unearthed in Scary Sailing Club. This is Australia Two Grinder John Longley. It can't be, uh, because
6: we, when the ones that we had in Newport, you know this is a story about the one being taken off the day after we'd won. But all the ones that we were in Newport were handmade. Um and this one that we're looking at is clearly one of the very, very first commercial ones. So it couldn't be taken off Black Swan when we got back here, but not in Newport. Uh, that's not that. That's certainly is uh, the provenance of that is not is not is is clearly, it's not a Newport flag. And how do you know this? All the ones that uh, in Newport were handmade by our sailmakers.
0: If the original from Black Swan did turn up, what would you look for?
6: First of all, it'd be handmade. It'd be made out of spinnaker cloth.
0: Ken's brother, Phil Judge, was the skipper of the Black Swan and stayed on board that night and for the entire summer.
2: If there were flags, they would have all been left on the boat we wouldn't have taken them off. You put them down in the drawer where all the flags and that were kept and everything stayed there, you know. They wouldn't have been left up. You never left the flags up after
0: sunset. No photos have emerged of a boxing kangaroo flying from Black Swan. So is this very early commercial boxing kangaroo flag of any value? This is Flags Australia vexillologist, Ralph Bartlett.
2: What it appears to be is that after Alan Bond and the Australia 2 crew won the race, they had a limited number of sponsor flags boxing kangaroo flags made up that they gave out to sponsors who contributed I believe about $26,000 or more at the time towards the the race campaign I'm thinking that this particular flag may have been given to one of the sponsors
0: How many of these sponsors over $24,000 possibly were there? I believe about a dozen It is of value from a historical perspective. So what is the provenance of this very early commercial boxing kangaroo in Scary Sailing Club?
2: Commodore Brian McNally. That's a $6 million question. The truth of the matter is nobody has come forward with a definitive... How it actually ended up, and unfortunately, there's no indication of any description on the actual flag itself as to where or who donated it or when it was donated.
0: So, what happens to the Scary's Boxing Kangaroo now? If
2: the decision is that it stays where it is, we'll give it its pride a place. You yeah. know what I mean? We'll 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 get it fixed in a in a proper place and maybe try and get a little bit a short bit of history with it if we can.
0: And where is the Black Swan's flag? John Longley again.
6: The chances of it turning up, I think, are pretty remote, considering that obviously someone must have nicked on, on board them that, that night and souvenired it. And whether that particular flag will ever turn up or not, I, I doubt. Is it possible that after several
0: cupfuls of swan lager, that the, the Black Swan's boxing kangaroo was handed over to a well-meaning yet opportunistic person in good faith?
6: Oh, I suppose so. Gosh knows.
0: Or is it possible that Liberty skipper Dennis Connor had a little tanty, ripped it from Black Swan?
6: <laughs> I think I think poor old Dennis had enough problems on his own. But I personally just find it fascinating that an event that was won by people on the other side of the world is resonates so much right around the world. And there you are in Ireland, in Ireland a very very early boxing kangaroo flag being uh, being uh, you know, preserved and looked after by this lovely little yacht club. <laughs>
1: And it is a lovely yacht club. That was Australia 2 crew member John Longley AM chatting there to our reporter, Connor Byrne. Lots of questions and not very many answers. Maybe you know a bit about what happened to the Black Swan flag almost 40 years ago, or you might even know where the scariest flag comes from. I'm sure Connor would love to hear from you. He can read more of his story on uh, Australia Wide's webpage on abc.net.au. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening.